Hello and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. Today's episode is a bit different than others you may have grown familiar with. It is one of a four-part mini-series that explores journalism and Web3. DiGiorno is a series hosted by Crypto Sapiens with the help of JournoDAO and other top builders in the Web3 and journalism space. It seeks to return to the roots and definition of what journalism is all about and to demystify the concepts and tools in Web3 that can aid in the process of decentralizing journalism. We hope to present to you, our dear listeners, with many of the novel applications that are being developed today. I truly hope you enjoy this content and find it useful in your crypto journey. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DiGiorno series. I'm Eureka, Eureka John and um, one of the, the founding members of Crypto Sapiens podcast. And Crypto Sapiens has a four-part mini-series called DiGiorno, which you are a part of, and we will explore the foundations of decentralized journalism. And in week one, we talked about the foundations of it, what it is, the definitions. Uh, week two, we talked about a lot of the tooling and the tools that journalists can use for the decentralization of journalism. And then now, today, we're going to talk about censorship. What is censorship? What does it look like nowadays? What's led up to it? And what are some of the ways that uh, journalists can combat censorship or even use censorship in the right way to uh, to help the journalists in the decentralized world. So I guess we'll start with some introductions and uh, we'll go around the table. Just a brief introduction and why you're here and why uh, you may have chosen this particular topic censorship to jump in on. Keith, we'll start from the top. Uh, yeah, I'm Keith Axline. I'm a developer in Portland, Oregon. Um, a previous career as a editor and at Wired Magazine and Medium, um, which gave me a lot of insight into the media world and all of its issues. And so now I've joined up with JournoDAO to, uh, to try and help fix some of the problems we saw. Right on. All right. Clinton Menick. Hey. Yeah, so my background is actually in uh, filmmaking. I studied screenwriting and I worked in reality television for a few years and ended up getting into Web3 as a speculator, gradually started learning about DAOs and governance and a lot of non-financial applications and getting involved in a couple DAOs. Uh, PubDAO was the first one that I got involved with, and that's actually where I met Eric Mack of JournoDAO as well, and I've been uh, getting more deeply involved in both of those ever since. Hi, I'm Crystal. Um, I'm a former photojournalist for a few decades, um, currently back at school and also working in the Web3 space as a community builder. Uh, founding member of JournoDAO, and um, yeah, this topic has all kinds of layers that I like to dive into. So, yeah, excited. Nice. Hey, um, I'm Reza. I've been in the space since like 2016, 2017. Originally, as a writer, I used to write a lot of content on Medium. Actually, I was the most read writer for the subjects of Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrency, etc. For a little while, uh, then ended up helping some tokens in 2017 and eventually dove into the DAO world uh, where I'm now working. Uh, contribute to a few DAOs, and, but my main focus right now is PubDAO and rethinking uh, decentralized media. And I actually didn't realize we were talking about censorship, but I'm super excited because this is one of my favorite topics. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this. That's, that's so rad. Okay. Th 
I'm glad I'm I'm stoked on this topic too. Censorship has always been something, even as a kid, that I was like super concerned about. You know, I wrote an underground newspaper in high school, trying to stick it to the man back then. You know, um, then I had a, a, my own little micro radio FM station. You know, trying to subvert the system, the big dogs, and you know, so there's a lot of that stuff going on. Um, censorship, and, and especially, I, I believe most of us um, grew up you know, in the '80s and '90s. When I think of censorship, I think of things like NWA. I think of things like the parental advisory explicit lyrics label that had to be slapped onto albums. Um, in the 80s, there was a huge fight in music censorship. D. Snyder of Twisted Sister, you get these visions of him, you know, pitting against the Washington wives, you know, with John Denver and Frank Zappa all teaming up to go against like the likes of the Republican religious right and stuff. So, you know. A lot of fond memories of 80s censorship. I, I guess we can start with, uh, and then in the 90s, there's like the protocol level, the technical censorship, Joe Biden trying to push his clipper chip into everybody's computer, fighting against the cypherpunks. So I guess we can start with what are some forms of censorship that you guys can think of? And uh, yeah, let's just set the ground right there. Of what does it look like? <laughs> I can I can jump it. I guess generally to me like censorship is whenever the the popular whenever the popular party decides what is okay to be said or not and that is usually enforced over the internet <laughs> via via uh, you know censoring blogs movies etc you know, i grew up in the middle east and when i was growing up uh there they would censor movies so you'd go into the movie theater and whenever there was a sex scene there would just be like a really obvious cut and then <laughs> go into the next scene. So when I, that's like my first memory of censorship. Okay, yeah. I mean, the Middle East definitely is known for some really heavy censorship as well. So it'd be interesting to see kind of um, different ways that other countries have used ways to fight against censorship too. Especially, you know, you think about things like the Arab Spring as well and ways in which they got around, you know, government-sanctioned um, cutting off of the internet lines and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, I lived in a I lived in a place where there was a proxy on the internet until I was eighteen. So until I was eighteen, I only had access to censored internet. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else have um, any uh, memories of uh, how censorship may have affected how they grew up and their viewpoints now? I mean, something more more recent, not necessarily when I was growing up, but this this concept of misinformation. I think that's that's been a pretty um, pretty touchy kind of thin ice in a lot of a lot of respects. But you can also you can at least I, I can kind of see both sides of it. I see that there's a lot of safety concerns, but it's also who's who's in a position to decide what's what's mm -hmm. objectively true. All of that. I think that's like an especially relevant kind of censorship we're dealing with right now. Definitely. Yeah. Legitimate forms of censorship, uh, you know, fact checking, misinformation, um, pornography, anti-money laundering, anti-spam, you know, like you said, who's in control of these a lot of and nowadays, it seems like a lot of large corporations are in, in charge of the methodologies of this. So, you know, I guess that's what we're here for, right? Yeah, we're seeing some really interesting examples of the dynamicness i guess of censorship right now because like we have um we have the revolution in iran for example it's kind of showing you an example of well i guess it depends on where you stand but like in my personal opinion bad censorship where there's 
you know, a, a woman-led peaceful, or was started peaceful, not sure if it's still peaceful, but a woman-led revolution in Iran, and like the first thing they do is, all right, cut the internet out, right? Mm. Cut Twitter, you know, just like cutting down really hard, censoring what the people are saying to try and stifle a revolution. Mm. Um, so it's, I think it's really important when people talk about censorship, they don't only think about things like, oh, like take the prostitutes out of Grand Theft Auto. They also think about, you know, like the Islamic regime in Iran suppressing the voice of the people. You know, that's definitely a double-sided sword that we tend to only focus on the good parts of uh, outside of Web3 for the most part. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point, you know, because like I said in the beginning, I grew up with this whole idea of, you know, anti-NWA lyrics and just saying F the police and, you know, fighting against that. And you don't think about as an American, other countries dealing with like real political threats. It's only until recently that Americans have really been able to see, see some concrete examples of that type of stuff, you know, so yeah, I guess we grew up with a different perspective on it. Yeah. And to that point, I think, um, you know, the censorship is, I'd say, more often than not uh, wielded by those who want to enforce the status quo. Um, it's usually like when, where censorship is most useful is um, in preventing uh, undesired change. And I think especially in like those examples in the 80s that you cited, um, you know, there was this change happening and it was mostly the people who wanted everything to stay the same that wanted to uh, censor the the messages of change. And it's, it sounds like that's uh, what's happening in Iran right now. And uh, I think that's an imp it's important to like see the motivation and the why of, of these things so we can uh, better plan how to how to strike that balance where the fire in the crowded theater versus, um, you know, just trying to keep people from finding out that there's like poison in your product and you just mm -hmm. want to sell it. And so it's like <laughs> censor any news outlet that's trying to like report that. Yeah. And I think too, what we're about to see, which will be really interesting is this, um, what happens when someone has like really strong financial motives and also controls one of the biggest public forums for speech. Um, mm. And like with Twitter now, you've got issues with China and Russia and the person controlling the platform has direct financial incentives to suppress speech from and uprisings from those two countries. Also, Saudi Arabia is now a large owner of Twitter. Mm. So where's the line there? There is no government oversight of that really. So I think we're about to enter a very interesting dangerous more dangerous time um Inter interesting that. yeah in your interview with um comeback kid on the bengal style legal guild you mentioned agenda setting theory and you know that's kind of it could be blatant over censorship in a way but it's also more subtle and maybe even unintentional and like you said big moneyed interests or just blatant government censorship why don't you talk a little bit about that about what that is and how maybe ad revenue and stuff like that can inadvertently censor without even meaning to sometimes yeah uh, media agenda setting theory was created um in the 70s during the nixon kennedy elections and I went back to journalism school at a time where um, one of my professors, he was just my history of mass comm professor, he actually created the theory and I had no idea. 
and um, dove into his research. And basically, um, I'm going to read just a summary so I don't butcher it. And he rolls over in his grave. The first assumption is that the media filters and shapes what we see rather than just reflecting stories to the audience. And the second assumption is that the more attention the media gives to an issue, the more likely the public will consider that issue to be important. So I would pop into his office and he would have grad students, PhD students with New York Times broadsheets measuring with rulers the amount of space a story was given on the front page above the fold and then do a comparison over time as to how much real estate the media gave a certain topic and why. And then they would make assumptions from there. So, I mean, there's many ways to unpack that. Um, and I think now we just see that on steroids because we're no longer getting information delivered on a piece of paper. It's delivered through these channels that have weaponized algorithms that have ad buys running next to controversial stories. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways to look at that media setting theory, really. Yeah. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. Censorship has gotten very sophisticated. <laughs> and as you say, through the algorithms, and I've had a hard time understanding and wrapping my re my head around how these algorithms work. Um, you know, it's, it's no longer, I mean, the, the whole idea of Tipper Gore and, you know, versus D Snyder back in the eighties, that's almost like a cartoon, you know, it's just so it's just easy to understand, but the, the idea of the algorithms controlling our, our, what we think and our narrative and stuff like that and censoring via that way, can you, somebody talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of describe in layman's terms how that happens? Um, yeah, I can jump in because I think it bounces off a point that I think we made in an earlier episode where, you know, <clears throat> in the early 2000s and like, as the internet became more popular and like blogging platforms and uh, the notion was that if people were able to uh, publish themselves, uh, then information would be democratized and like uh, this utopia would kind of ensue. And then what um, few people kind of understood the power of algorithms and distribution. And once everyone's online and once attention is monetized, then uh, the algorithm becomes this very powerful uh, tool and uh, both of directing attention, but also censorship. And I think um, the amount of reach and power and the power asymmetry between uh, just the average user's understanding of the technology and its effect on them is uh, something quite quite new. And we're in the middle of it. And it's, it's hard to get a zoomed out picture. But I think we're starting to uh, all kind of viscerally feel the, uh, the harms of it. So it's kind of the algorithms are all around us working at all times right now. And it's kind of like a, a fish being in water, being aware of the water in a way. Yeah. I mean, well, recently I started watching the, oh, sorry, watching the Twitter algorithm a little closer. It's really the, the algorithm I engage with the most. And I noticed probably about three weeks ago, and I don't know if it was a correlation between gearing up for the midterms, but I noticed a distinct, um, difference in the algorithm i started watching puppy videos and i'm not into like fuzzy animal videos at all i never have been um but i started watching cute little fuzzy things because i was just stressed and within an hour i probably watched maybe 10 minutes at the most within an hour my feed had completely changed and i was on the home algorithm not the latest feed 
but it instantly changed the entire look of my feed. And that was powerful. And I saw it happening. Well, most people don't understand the technology works that way. So they're not looking for it. So they could spend hours down a rabbit hole because they watched one video and then the algorithm continued to feed them. Now it's one thing if they're fuzzy puppy videos, it's another thing if they're a, a, a conspiracy theory that's being used to, to polarize a community. And then that polarization ends up in the public discourse out in real life. And that's what we're living through right now. And we're going to mm -hmm. see it at scale next week. So. Okay. Next week. The election. Yeah. Clips. Okay. So, so you just think the polarization is going to be pushed extra hard. Who, who controls that? I mean, well, with Twitter, I mean, it, it was a group of people, but now I think they're all getting fired today. Um, <laughs> so who knows? We don't, we don't know because, you know, there's a wall between us because it's a corporation. So this brings us back to decentralization. If you can have that algorithm or some aspects of it that are transparent, then it's a different conversation. And then we can say, all right, who's controlling this and why? And then if it's community driven, then you can change that. But if it's owned by a corporation or a government or an entity that you don't have access to, then that's that's a huge issue. And we can already we can see the issue now, like in our da daily lives. Right now, all the, the, these corporations, these, these platforms are collecting all of our data and they're running algorithm algorithms on our data. But that that is not transparent. Those algorithms are not transparent. So what difference would it make if we could see those algorithms? A key part of this is that the algorithms are geared towards the ad business. And so I'm maybe less concerned. I mean, even though it is a concern about like the people working at Twitter and Facebook uh, and what influence they have over the algorithms, um, but more just the automated uh, money machines that these are. And then you get um, pretty well capitalized entities whether it's like a, a corporation or a state actor who kind of they can hire a team of technical people to reverse engineer um a lot of these algorithms and the platforms and then also have access to the data through the ad platform and they can just do weird stuff that nobody anticipated um because they're just sort of running on their own they have this one narrow scope of testing that they've kind of been run on everything looks fine um, but then you can just come in and put a bunch of misinformation in, you can put, you can flood stuff, you can create uncertainty and doubt, even if you're not really like changing people's minds, you can, you can couple a technical competence with a, uh, a psychological competence and just, a, an asymmetry of both, uh, technical skill and, uh, knowledge. And then you have access to large uh, volumes of data that's very personal and you can target people. So it would, if you have capital and resources and, and uh, a desire that can be better, better met, if a large number of people behave a certain way, then this is kind of just open, open <clears throat> season for you. And, um, you know, I think we're talking censorship is like the reverse side of the attention coin kind of, it's like whatever we're being geared to, <laughs> to pay attention to, uh, that is kind of inherently censoring like a, a whole slew of other things. And I know this is something that, that you've put a lot of thought into, Keith, about ownership and sovereignty of data, uh, which at, you know, on one level is just being able to own and organize your data and on another level being able to choose to monetize it. But I think there's the opaqueness of these 
algorithms that are harvesting our data in ways that we may not even be aware of. And making those transparent is one thing, but then also there's still the question of users owning their data and being aware of how their data is being used. I think that those are maybe two different kind of sides to this, where if we just make the algorithms more transparent, that's it's like, a, at least in my mind, that's a step in the right direction, but it's, it still doesn't get at how a lot of this data can be exploited or extracted in ways that are kind of, I don't know, like iffy or, or problematic. We saw this with um, Cambridge Analytica in in 20, the 2016 and again with Brexit um, and what they did with all of the data that Keith's talking about and how they weaponized it to get that political agenda across. And it's very well documented. Um, the Guardian did a lot of the research, a lot of the reporting. And then a professor in, I think it was NYU, um, also did a lot of this research. And it's in a Netflix documentary called The Great Hack. And I think if more people watched that, they'd have a better understanding of the whole picture of what we're talking about. They and even have uh, a good term for it too, psychographics is what they called it. Yeah. And they had um, people from within Cambridge Analytica. Um, one was a whistleblower and one was something. They talked about how they used, how they manipulated the data that they had to make people think a certain way. And this also brings us into self-censorship, which we haven't really talked about much either. But when you know, like, like Reza is talking about, when you know that someone's surveilling your thoughts and, um, and if you're typing them into a digital device, then you do sometimes inherently self-censor your, yourself. So then, you know, as a journalist, as a storyteller, that becomes a huge issue because if you can't freely articulate something, especially um, in a political situation or, or a social situation, then that's also a huge issue we need to talk about as well. Yeah. Reza, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what does, I see censorship is surveillance. I don't, I don't see like people sitting behind keyboards monitoring everything you say, but more like computer algorithms or AI kind of looking for certain patterns and instances. Like what, what does, what does that look like? Um, I think it's really interesting. I had never thought about algorithms as a form of censorship, but you guys are absolutely right. It's kind of like, like shadow censoring, like the same way that Twitter has the shadow banning, which is like worse because then you sound crazy when you're like, no, no one's, no one cares about my stuff. And it's like, well, you posted <laughs> it. Like maybe your stuff just isn't good. And like, that's, yes. that's, uh, it's really interesting. So for people that uh, maybe aren't as savvy with the internet, what is shadow banning? Uh, shadow banning is when you don't get an outright notification or like you're not outright banned. Your account isn't closed. Um, there's no visible difference in your account. But someone on the back end of you know Twitter or whatever platform you're being shadow banned on has essentially like flipped a switch that says, you know, don't don't give this person attention. Uh, like don't put them, don't let the algorithm algorithm take their content and feed it to other people. So that way, like the only way that you're seeing this person's content is if you actively search for it, type in their name, mm -hmm. and uh, try to look at it. Okay. It's also it's kind of when we talk about algorithms as a form of censorship, how it kind of, uh, it also makes, it might make people or like censorship in some ways can make people, uh, if they feel like they're being monitored, self-censor. And that makes me think a little bit about cancel culture and how cancel culture is also sort of like, when, when you say self-censor, I immediately think can't like cancel, like I self-censor all the time. <laughs> I'm like, I just, you know, and it's, it's a really interesting concept that we ha sort of have this like, you know, automated digital 
shadow censoring tool via algorithms. And then we have this more, you know, less automated, somewhat decentralized shadow censoring or not shadow, very, uh, very obvious censoring tool through, um, through cancel culture. It's, it's really interesting. I'm learning a lot on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, go ahead. You brought up a good point. I mean, Keith and I are a little old school. So we used to produce journalism at a time where it was pen and paper is how it started. Or like when I took a photo, it was on film. So no one knew what was on it until I processed it and then put it out into the world. But if you've grown up working just on digital platforms, then you didn't really have to think about necessarily self-censorship because it just wasn't, you didn't make that transition from something completely private between you and your, your pencil and your piece of paper mm -hmm. into something that could be read and distributed with or without your knowledge. And something you said also, Reza, made me realize something. This summer I got booted off of Instagram and I'm not super active on that account. I just kind of watch my friends, um, babies grow up. But this summer I posted, um, I've had the account for about five years, but I posted pictures of documenting the Women's March in DC after Roe v. Wade got reversed. And that's the only thing that's been on that account for the past nine months. And then I also use an encrypted email address and I got temporary, temporarily shut down and to get it fired back up, it required a huge amount of personal data and facial recognition to be submitted. And I was like, y'all can have that account. We don't need that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's also a form of um, not shadow banning, which is outright be like, get the hell yeah. out. So. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 makes, it makes me think about like the, um, how censorship can also drive the development of language and it can make language kind of fork itself, you know, because people will substitute other words out for instance, like the backs, you know, people coming up with all different types of ways to say it. I mean, this is, that's been going on forever. Even John on the Isle of Patmos, when he was writing revelations, wrote apocryphal texts in order to get past the Roman guards to be able to convey messages to the flock, you know, so, I mean, but just alternate ways of saying things. And so it's a constant evolutionary process to, to combat censorship. Yeah. And I, I think maybe I, I veered towards the algorithm discussion because um, maybe that's, what's a little bit new. Uh, I mean, this is, these things have existed in some form, like you said, uh, forever, but I think that the new part is with just the un the unintended consequences of algorithms are just like off the charts where I think very few uh, people who were behind the construction of them really were concerned or like they didn't have any bad intentions for the most part. And yet you get things like, you know, the, the early Facebook censorship algorithms are, are interesting to, to read about, like, how breastfeeding mothers got their pictures taken down because, you know, the algorithm just saw boobs. So that's like, no, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, por that's porn. And it, it very quickly, like almost immediately showed that, you know, humans are just like bad judge of writing, writing rules to parse reality towards uh, certain goals. Um, and so we need algorithms because there's just too much stuff, right? Like that's the whole reason they exist is like, it wasn't very long before the internet just had like way too much stuff. And you're like, I just need to find the stuff that's relevant to me. And so mm -hmm. they're definitely like a necessary, a necessary thing. But I think the, the unintended hubris of thinking that we could, um, Write write rules that work across all content, um, all contexts, all situations that will have the desired effect. 
I think that's kind of the you're, you're asking why open algorithms because we need we need to be able to see everything all the rules so that we can adjust them and figure out like why things happen and the more eyes we have on these things the better we can um, use them to our our own ends and if only 10 people are able to see and understand the algorithm then you know the scope of that problem is already beyond the minds of those 10 people and it's just going to get away from them one one way or the other like openness is really the only way you can you can try and actually have a fair implementation of these these giant scope issues and in the lack of transparency like he's talking about then those those entities can then say oh well it's free speech or they can just dismiss it if you don't know what the technology is actually doing then that claim that they're making it can't be validated but it also can't be disputed because you have no idea what the technology actually is and I, I think maybe a good frame for people who are just don't really want to get into the the technicalities of it um, and they they shouldn't have to i think is to just view two sides of every every article you read not like the content but like okay you're sitting at your computer you're one person with one brain with a limited experience you may not know much about how the computer works but then on the other end whatever content you're seeing has like millions of dollars of r d behind it like in the context that you're viewing that piece of content like that context probably already knows like most of your personal information it knows what what it can nudge you to do and what it can't nudge you to do and it knows and it definitely has a thing that it wants you to do and it doesn't really care what you wanted to do before you came to that <laughs> to that page right and so that power asymmetry is i think i think what people should uh should focus on um just as as they navigate the world of algorithms until we do get uh open user controlled ones and to tie that back into like a direct journalism example, like what Keith was just saying, when I was crafting my Twitter feed years ago, I came to Twitter mainly as a journalist. So, and this is kind of also along the media agenda setting. I had my media feed list set up and it started with major mainstream outlets, you know, New York Times, The Atlantic, all the big ones. And then I followed the journalists that were making those stories. And then I followed the people locally on the ground, like there were their fixers or that were helping them gather that information if they had a Twitter presence so that I could see a full scope of this story before it hit that mainstream outlet. So that allowed me to see what was happening on the ground, how the journalist on the ground was reporting it in real time on Twitter, experiencing it. And then also how it then ended up in the mainstream outlet as the final product and then how that got skewed one way or the other. And because Twitter allowed that in the past, like when I was in um, Palestine for a story, we did that on, gr on the ground, on foot so that we could see there was a story breaking in the New York Times. We'd been in that area that day. So we just walked back down to that area and asked the shopkeepers what happened. And we got a completely different story by the time it went to the mainstream outlet. So that's what Twitter enables. And if those algorithms are doing, like Razor was saying, that shadow banning of those journalists on the ground, you're missing the full scope of a story. So that's a huge issue that we also need to be aware of that you know we really aren't. Okay, so whenever you gather and collect that information and those stories and you upload it to the Twitter platform, then it suddenly becomes susceptible to that Twitter algorithm is what you're saying, right? So what 
journalists and web3 developers and DAOs are trying to do are to create alternate platforms in which people can be able to put that information there so it can't be censored and make it available for themselves and other people to use right it's kind of what i'm getting the gist of it and that, also that fact check yes okay. and, yeah, fact -check. Right. and then also that opens it up for fact checking like um keith can talk about with fact with fact dow um you know, once that story's on chain and there's a record of it, um, especially if journalists are on the ground in a conflict zone and they're able to publish on the ground, you can see the metadata of the location and of what, you know, what happened. It's a, it's a, it's a record at that point. And then you can also have fact checkers that can step in and use other sources of data, either human intel or, or other, you know, online data to cor corroborate a story and then collectively decide, yes, that happened. No, it didn't happen. Here's why we say it did or didn't happen. Okay. All right. And that's a decentralized version of fact checking in which anybody can participate. That's not paid for by some kind of hedge fund. Yeah. And I think, you know, I kind of view it as, um, this almost processing of, of information. And if you have like say in, in, uh, crystals example, the reporting on the ground is like the most uh, raw kind of information. And then you have it, uh, being processed by like the reporters and editors and the publication and all of that chain is usually invisible to, uh, most, most people. And they just get the final, the final result. And then, so Twitter used to be great where you could see all that, but then as these algorithms become more sophisticated, they're almost removing all of that raw material um, from the public record and from any um, anybody's attention. And I think with decentralized uh, media and uh, journalism tools, we keep all the raw material intact. And then if each person ha has their own algorithm, then at least like that raw material is like available for the algorithm to to act upon. And it's kind of like it's securing that base layer of like, okay, it might not be interesting to anybody. There's going to be this like, you know, massive amount of information and data that is like just boring and useless and is like food pictures or whatever. But it's going to be there so that like if suddenly, you know, this event in the future happens that suddenly makes this like previously totally boring thing relevant and interesting then mm. that can be like connected back and we can actually find that but right now we're like filtering way too early where we're just like removing a bunch of information just because like oh it's not interesting right now for our advertisers or our, our businesses or whatever so like let's just let's just ditch it and i think once we get algorithms that can actually surface things for different purposes other than just you know targeting ads then we're gonna have all this stuff we're going to wish that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot more material that was like laying around for us to operate on because we discarded a bunch of stuff that just wasn't relevant to the the current need i've got a, a question for you guys that kind of builds off of keith's point there if we do have something like a twitter built on a distributed ledger something like orbis maybe orbis is a good first mover here where the content <clears throat> being uploaded is it all shared maybe if not on a distributed ledger then on some kind of distributed database like ceramic or something that you know wouldn't require gas fees to <clears throat> upload content to 
how could we square that with any censorship needs? Like if they, if we wanted to avoid people uploading like profane or gratuitous content that children could see, how do you, how do you square that with, with this kind of decentralized censorship thing? I mean, I, my, my mind initially goes to having some kind of a jury system where like if maybe if some content content can get flagged either by human users or algorithms and then it gets sent to some kind of jury uh, to get to you know square it with some rules and the rules themselves can be open source i'm wondering what you guys think about all this i don't know if you do i think that's one of the downfalls of, of decentralizing this stuff um you will op- we will open a can of worms and I don't know if you can. And it, it might just be that that's that double-edged sword we have to walk um, until enough people understand the technology. And then you could put rules in place. Um, I do like what he's talking about, the personalized algorithm. And we might end up in our own little silos, which could also be bad. Um, but being able to control what is delivered to you. But at some point, bad actors are going to use, I mean, they're already using this technology. So it's, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer to that. Yeah, the, the personalized algorithm point is really funny because it's like, do you mind censorship if you're censoring the information that hits you yourself? You know, like if you create your own echo chamber, are you, are you cool with it? Um, and I also, I completely agree on the whole, uh, once, I think once you, you know, decentralize something <laughs> like social or any sort of information sharing protocol or platform, um, you kind of just got to take the good with the bad. And I think that we're, we're moving towards a potentially good solution when we see things like um, Lens Protocol, which is building not just like, okay, this is decentralized Twitter. They're saying we're building a social protocol that people can build apps on top of. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool to me because it's the protocol which needs to be completely censorship resistant. You know, the protocol needs to be neutral. But if someone, if Donald Trump wants to come along and build you know, decentralized Trump Twitter, he can put whatever algorithm he wants on that. And he's going to attract whatever people he can attract to that. And like, he's free to censor that however he wants to. But as long, in my opinion, as long as the protocol remains pure, so that there can be an uncensored and truly decentralized option for people, then I, in my mind, that's how it should be, I think. Yeah. At what level does that curation start to take place at the protocol level um, at at the the layer on top of that, I I guess would be smart contract level. And then on top of that would be like the DAP level, you know, the three different way layers. And and where is that curated? I know DAOs are trying to curate. Journal DAO is talking about, you know, journalists and and news outlets being curators of the data. Um, I don't pub DAO. Um, tell me a little bit about what PubDAO is trying to do in that aspect as well. Um, so PubDAO, there's something we're working on right now. I haven't actually talked about it publicly yet. So, you know, breaking. Are you allowed to? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're working on something <laughs> called, a, I'm loosely just calling it an anonymous tips platform or a non-beta. And the idea is to create a platform where people would be able to and incentivized to come and submit tips for stories or scams or basically sensitive information. And there's another party of people that are incentivized to come and vet that information. Uh, And the people vetting the information typically might be 
uh, reporters, journalists, people who are looking for stories, um, looking for information that they can turn into stories, and then they can like link up with the person who submitted the tip, uh, work on vetting it together, you know, get more follow-up information. And the idea is that right now we're just kind of testing it out, working on like a beta version of it where it's you know not decentralized at all. We're just seeing if this relationship between the tippers and the you know vetters can work, and if there's any value there. Um, but it seems promising so far, and the idea is that in the end it would be sort of this you know censorship resistant decentralized protocol that is incentivizing people via a token or something else to come in and just be the actor we want them to be in this system. Um, it's not exactly curation, but um, I think it's a step in the right direction when it comes to making sure that information gets equal weight and that people who have information that might be valuable have a way to share it and that they're also rewarded for it. Um, like I yeah. thought it was really interesting how Zach XBT, I think a month or so ago, he was tweeting out about how like, I just can't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I've got a full-time job and this is like, this takes up a lot of time. I don't think anyone understands how time intensive this is. And he does a good service and he shouldn't do it for free in my, like he should be incentivized in some way. And he's probably making a killing in donations now, but I don't think it should be relying on donations. There should be some sort of uh, regular. Yeah. For that. This, this kind of matching of, you know, the, the content creator and the tipper, this back and forth, it makes me think of uh, decentralized identity systems, you know, and bringing in W three ID into this and giving journals some kind of journalists some kind of credentials um, based upon maybe the amount of legit information that's been you know conveyed through them and stuff like that and kind of uh, building up over time. Yeah, a, a reputation system is definitely like I think one of the more important aspects for the people submitting tips as well. Um, because you want to know that like, there's all kinds of problems. You can all kinds of like edge cases that you can think of where someone would come in and abuse this platform. Like let's say Justin Sun does something really shady and he knows it's about to come out in the news. He could go onto this platform, hire a thousand tippers, have them submit a thousand mm. obscure tips, like flood the system. Um, there's like, there are Civil edge cases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that we have to figure out ways to work around. Um, but I think one of the ways to try and avoid that specific edge case would be implementing some sort of reputation system where um, like as things get published from one person's you know tips they start to build a, a credibility um, that maybe gives them priority access to like betters whenever they submit or something like that we're still very early on in this but i'm really excited about it and i think one of the the ideas we talked about and maybe uh i don't know if this as a cure would be worse than the disease but having those submitting the tips are able to be anonymous, but those verifying may have to stake their reputation on it mm. in some in some kind of and not not KYC, but it wouldn't be anonymous, perhaps. And maybe that's I I don't know if, if that opens up possibilities that are worse than just letting people anonymously kind of stake their reputation on something. But I'm wondering what, what do you guys think about that? Like if there's some some a statement that's submitted to this that says this project is running a, like a bot army scam on yeah. Telegram and there's all these celebrities are endorsing it, whatever. Like should should reporters or journalists who want to like verify this stuff, I don't know if they would have to be producing like supporting evidence as part Some... of their like verification thing, but like should they have to 
have to like associate their real identity with their verifying that or, or so every out. verified or actual um tip can maybe build as an in the form of an nft perhaps i mean it also makes me think of like the republic de um i guess decentralized aggregator and repository of information in which the person is able to upload their data and still own it and then sell their data and it kind of would make me think of like a decentralized version of wikileaks in which using zk proofs in which that person remains anonymous but they're still able to sell their data and then every time that data checks out and is used it builds upon that person's anonymous identity you know their cryptographic uh, handle you know <laughs> That, that's kind of exactly like the the pathway that we're exploring right now is like how do we it's it becomes it's very difficult to use um zk to anonymize data that isn't like uh alphanumeric strings um mm -hmm. <laughs> it becomes a little more difficult that's like something that we've been trying to figure out uh, but in a perfect world, that is how it would work. Um, that it would be anonymized in that fashion. And like another way that we're thinking about it is like, you have to put up something that you can lose. So like you mentioned staking, clinomenic, like it could, whether it's like you're worried about losing your reputation for vetting something incorrectly, or if you're putting up a stake of this, you know, platform token or protocol token that comes along with the uh, tipping platform. If you if you're gonna gain something, you have to put up something that you can lose. It's almost like a collateralized debt position. I actually mm -hmm. I didn't think about that until just now. It seems like a core theme in crypto. It's just like yeah, <laughs> you, you can get this, but you got to give us something, and we'll take it from you if you're shitty. <laughs> like, yeah, constant game theory. You know that that's yeah. kind of what uh, Keith is involved in Factland DAO, and in order to be able to substantiate a fact, you have to put your skin in the game, and then everybody has to vote on it. Yeah, whether it ends up true or not after the vote, I mean, it's kind of a majority rule type of thing. But uh, tell us a little bit about that real quick. Um, yeah, and, and I'll just note that, you know, that we're seeing this at the largest scale, probably at, on the Ethereum network right now. I mean, that's like basically what proof of stake is, is, you know, validating the network through everyone has too much to lose to, <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> anything bad on it and so i think it, there's something powerful there but um yeah so with with Factland, we're we're just trying to align the incentives of everyone so that uh we're trying to get rid of the the ease at which people can just say whatever they want and they get it doesn't cost them anything and they get a lot of value out of it because at the very least you're just like muddying the waters right like you can just say lies all day and it will actually have a material like eroding of the truth. Um, even if people know that you're lying, you know, it's just like psychologically these ideas get in there and like truth is like pretty easy just to like unseat from, <laughs> from the brain. And you have to hear like a true statement, like a hundred times to like just match like, one time of hearing uh the lie or something for it to get out of your brain and so um in order to uh like submit and do you know meaningful things on on fact land you have to put up a stake and say like no i actually believe this and i believe it to the point where i'm gonna you know lose something of value 
uh, if it's decided that it's not true. And, and so it's really going to hinge on our randomized juries, um, which I think um, has a lot of real world uh, support for a lot of studies and evidence that have shown that randomized juries do a, as good as or better job than um, selected uh, panels of experts when reviewing evidence and trying to come up with like a, a reasonable like adjudication of a, of a claim or a statement. And so we're just trying to make that as easy as possible where everybody can submit claims that they're curious about or they like feel strongly about it doesn't matter and then people can basically stake one way or the other this is true this is false or like there's no way this could ever be decided which is also you know as the the platform grows we might get more and more like labels for claims that um, they can be adjudicated as and then people submit evidence so you're the mechanics are such that you get rewarded for submitting quality evidence. Like if the jury cites your piece of evidence, then then you get a reward. Um, or if other peers, you know, upvote it, then you get rewarded. So you're kind of like incentivized at, at every step to like provide value to both the jury and the other people reading the claim and who are going through the evidence we're just developing the the protocol and the, the mechanics but we're not like adjudicating these these claims ourselves it's just like random random users random people and i think until you get to that point you're always going to be able to say that this central group of people it's biased one way or the other the other and like you'll probably be right and so once you get to a big enough random group of people they do they do all right they just their humanity shines through, yeah. especially when they're in like discussion with each other. Okay. Reza mentioned uh, okay. zero knowledge and, and ID in conjunction earlier. And I may have mentioned to some of you that um, Holonym is this team that Lobby3 has been working with to develop a ZK ID. And, and the way that they describe it, I shared the white paper in the chat here. The way that they describe it is that it's essentially a mixer, but instead of wallets, hmm sending like money through it. They're sending identity information through it. And there's a smart contract that keeps array of certain hashes of identity information. And it essentially just defers to like external issuers of, of identity of like identification documents and verifiers like persona or vouched. They're kind of like trusted web to KYC solutions and just kind of bringing like hashing those, bringing them into this kind of identity mixer and then letting you go about, verifying aspects of your identity in a kind of modular way without you having to upload that identity information to a public ledger or even trust some entity to hold on to it for you. And, and I'm wondering like something like this, it's being developed as a, as a public good, essentially could, could plug into, yeah, I shared a, like a, the white paper here. Um, I'll, I'll spell that for the, the listeners. Oh, okay, and it, you know, it could plug into Factland. It could potentially plug into the anonymous tips platform. Uh, it could it could make a lot of this stuff more. It could plug into like, jury mechanisms in general because uh, mm -hmm. it's like one of the things they're building this for is for civil resistance. But like, at least for me, a lot of it, a lot of this discussion hinges on solutions like this, whether it's Holonym or some other team that manages to crack how to do this zero knowledge, like balance zero knowledge with 
hmm. KYC needs because like if like minus the ZK thing, we're either going to end up with some kind of Orwellian panopticon or else yeah. we're just going to keep repeating the same solutions of people of like these central entities having all this identity information and being able to monopolize it, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're pretty much out of time, but I wanted to end it on um, <clears throat> kind of a question, you know, which way are we going? We're at a crux right now between pre free will and predestination, you know, between the surveillance state and our choice to build tools to combat that. So uh, we'll start from the top and uh, just, you know, which way do you lean in the future, in the near future, free will or predestination, Reza? Which way do you think it'll go? Oh, man. Um, I think we're heading... I think the current trajectory is towards predestination, but I'm doing everything in my power. And I believe that a lot of people in this industry are doing everything in their power to make that not the case. Spencer. Uh, not, not sure. I, I really believe in free will in the, in the normal <laughs> sense, but I, I I'm optimistic for where this, all this technology and, and society is heading, believe it or not. <laughs> all right. Keith. Yeah, I think, um, the the end state is optimistic and we will we'll get to a better place than where we're at now and i think these tools will come to fruition but i think what everyone should be considering is like you know if you looked at the world in like um you know the year 1900 and then the year 1960 and you're like oh yeah things got better but like there was a lot of uh there's a lot of stuff that happened and uh there's a huge body count to get to the better. And I think um, we should all evaluate like if we're in a spot to get crunched under the gears as as we slowly progress towards like a, a more humane world and uh, technosphere. Um, I, I don't think the terrible things will happen, but they can. And I think we all just need to, um, you know, I guess the one the one thing, if we all uh, protect the speech that we hate the most, I, if everyone operates under that assumption, we'll be we'll be all right. But we've kind of lost that North North Star. I'll write that up as tentative free will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris. Exactly. will eventually. I'll let you have the final you know, the take on this one. <laughs> I I am in the same camp as Keith. Um, I do hold optimism, even though I am wildly cynical sometimes, especially now. Um, but I do think that we have to go through the dystopian version of this first and get through that to get to the optimistic part. And I know for me this weekend, I was feeling that dystopia like really strong between all the stuff on Twitter and all the other things. So I kind of leaned into my own um, rusty tech skill set and wiped an old or a new PC and installed Linux and then I locked it down. And that's what I used to do a lot during um, the past administration. And it gave me a sense of autonomy and agency and allowed me to feel like, all right, if nothing else, I've got this little device over here that's insulated from people spying on me and I can write whatever the fuck I want. And nice. having that skill set still active and having it ready for the dystopia we might be entering in, I think is something we all should look at as technologists and as journalists. And as Keith's saying, like, know your skill sets, um, know how to lock it down, and then you have a stronger voice if you do. Nice. 
that is a great way to end it. You know, dystopia on Monday. We work hard all week so we can have free will by Friday, right? <laughs> so thanks again for you guys jumping on this episode number three. Next week, we have episode number four, and that's going to talk about um, journalism. Is it a public good or is it a business and funding journalism in Web3? Um, so, yeah, and don't forget to um, JournoDAO has an NFT for sale and 10% of the proceeds of that NFT will go to support the Crypto Sapiens podcast. Um, don't buy the NFT if you think it's going to raise in value and all that stuff. It's not a speculative piece of, of whatever it is. It's just uh, just an NFT for you to support this mission. And that's it. And hey, you know, you're, you're not going to get rich from it. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, thanks again. <laughs>